Hello, and welcome to Make Data Human. I'm Anjali Beatty, and on this episode, we have a very special guest. I'm joined by the incredible Neil Giles, the CEO of Traffic Analysis Hub. Neil has spent the last 30 years of his career in law enforcement and NGOs combating organized crime, and specifically human trafficking. I can give credit to Neil for single-handedly teaching me that human trafficking is not like a scene out of the movie Taken. So for those of you who have seen Taken, it stars Liam Neeson. His daughter gets kidnapped. She's sold into modern slavery and is about to be sold off to a wealthy sheikh. And Liam Neeson comes and rescues her. Neil basically taught me that that's not how human trafficking actually works. It's a much more complex crime and there's a lot of different ways in which data can can tackle it. So I'm very excited to have him on today. And uh, Neil, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Anjuli. So let's go ahead and jump into it. What is human trafficking? Trafficking's a business that just enables traffickers to steal the the wages, the income of people who, who do different sorts of work. So they might work in the sex industry. And whatever you think about selling sex, essentially the people that control sex workers steal the money and they market you as a commodity. In the broader world, in manufacture of goods, creation of things that we want to buy and eat, in the forced labour world, I suppose, or in the exploited labour world, to be more accurate, it's just the same equation. A trafficker markets you, finds an opportunity to use you, and steals the money that you earn, or or uses you in their own business at no cost, because labour costs are pretty much the biggest element of, of anyone's business expense. How does trafficking differ today from it did back in the 1600s where slavery was an institution and and it was legal? Well, in a couple of different ways. Actually, it's less expensive for the traffickers now. Really? Yeah, a really fun point that I picked up some years ago from a guy I was working with who'd actually done some research. If if you were a, a plantation owner in the southern USA in the early 1800s, you'd be spending on a prime field hand the equivalent today of 40,000 US. That's what the outgoing would be. So you'd need a return on that kind of an investment over several years. But actually, if you want to get someone to come pick and pack strawberries in the UK and steal their wages now, you kind of just need to spend about £50 sterling on a Wizz Air flight and you trick them into coming here and boom, you're working. Because now it's it's more trickery than anything else. How do people get tricked into situations of modern slavery? Like, let's put this in the context of Ukraine, right? Given the number of refugees spilling across the border, how do you trick those refugees into to going to somewhere like the UK, for example, and being in conditions of modern slavery? The picture of safe havens where economies are vibrant, where wages are higher. I mean, minimum wage in somewhere like the Ukraine's pretty low level in comparison. And that's true across pretty much much of Eastern Europe, emerging Europe. So it's a no-brainer. And traffickers um, look to work where they have strength, where they have familiar network, familial networks, where they have 
maybe a kind of organised crime networks. You can't discount this as organised crime because it is. And it's a really important part of the equation because at some point down the track, maybe when the traffic victim in a third country is not being paid, is realising that they're being exploited, then you have to have a control mechanism back home. That's when your son calls home and says, Mum, these people are abusing me, I need to come home. You've already had a visit from the network and they've said, hey, your little lad Jimmy, he's he owes us a ton of money and he's supposed to be working it off and he's not working. Uh, So when you call home, family's frightened, family say, listen, you need to work for those people, you need to pay that debt off. It's just another level of control mechanism. Uh, Sure, there's a turnover in this process, um, but but that whole insidious process of grooming, getting confidence, convincing people to go on a journey, and then the coercion begins way down the track. And it has plenty of places still to go to ratchet up, to make it ever more complicated to escape. There are stories in the UK of Eastern European folk turning up on the doorstep of their embassies with nothing. No, or just literally the clothes are wearing. Some no shoes, uh, just begging to be sent home because they've, they've been exploited if this is in the UK. And the market in the UK is, I think, maybe just shy of 150,000 people in exploitation. And, and globally, the numbers are said to be 40 million. And there's more work being done on that at the moment. And that doesn't include child labour. You want to put child labour into the package you're way north of 150 million people who work for nothing, putting together the commodities that go into our daily lives. It's a big and insidious problem, and and the antidote to it is actually beginning to make it so transparent to everybody who interacts with it somehow so that it, it just, you have to make a choice. So data leads to transparency, and analysis leads to me as Joe Soap showing up to buy something, um, it's going to have a label guaranteed free of exploitation or not. And then I have to make a choice. Do I buy it or don't I buy it? And we need to take that to a corporate level and to a financial level. So let's pull back a little bit and think about how we use data to actually create transparency. What does that look like? Um, My background is in the process of intelligence collection. Uh, I spent 36 years in UK law enforcement. My whole professional career was in uh, uh, focused on collecting criminal intelligence, particularly associated with, I'm, an, I'm a narco warrior by history, around the cocaine industry is my, is my biggest sort of area of expertise. But learning how you take survivor narratives, a survivor journey in industrial quantities and turn that into accessible insights in every aspect for every actor to draw on. And actually, the problem I find now is that corporates don't have enough time to do the research. They need a, um, a silver bullet almost to, to guide their activity. And until we find ways to get that to them as quickly as possible, we're still going to struggle here. But survivor narratives, so where was I recruited? How was I recruited? Why was I recruited? And the why lives in the demographics and the characteristics of an individual, and they get repeated. So maybe 
if if you're in East Africa, female under 25, you're a prime target to be trafficked to probably to the Middle East, but not exclusively to. If you're in southeastern Poland, and if you're a young man or a young woman, you're kind of a bit edgy. You haven't got any work. It's it's a bit tricky in uh, where you are. There's not a lot of jobs around. You may be using drink or drugs or, or have a criminal history. You're a prime target. And it differs from different parts of the world. And, and those people go into different industries in different parts of the world. And the trick of this whole process is to be able to understand why that demographic and that nationality from that particular part of the world ends up in this part of the world doing this kind of work. And then beginning to translate that into the various actors that ought to have a sense of why and how this is working. Why are there so many one-way air tickets being bought out of East Africa for journeys to the Middle East? Why are the costs of producing palm oil on these three plantations so different to the other 25 plantations in that industry in that part of the world? Um, and, and those are questions that auditors don't ask, that banks don't ask, and businesses, well, businesses, if they're doing okay, don't ask, and they should. You mentioned law enforcement. You've mentioned corporates. Whose job is it to solve human trafficking, ultimately? And why do you think we haven't been able to get a grasp on solving this yet? Two quick reasons leap to mind. There are multiple subsets. Number one, the world has relied exclusively on law enforcement to be the solution to the human trafficking problem. Some of that actually grows from the United States, who are very focused on law enforcement is the solution to this problem. The justice process is absolutely necessary. Uh, and, and you will have seen Epstein and like cases dominating the headlines. Um, I, I read a, a, a case just the other day where a teenager in Georgia was arrested for trafficking a child younger than herself for the purposes of sex going across state lines. Going across state lines in the states is, is a thing. And yet there are so many cases around the world where children are groomed into recruiting other children. Uh, and they're actually as much the victim as they are the, the trafficker. And the traffickers often sit in the background and are, and, and, and the case is done. Case is made, it's sorted, it's boxed off, off it goes to the justice process, job's a good one. And that isn't solving any problems. That's just kind of taking one fish out of an ocean. We have to have to look at this more logically. The demand end of the equation needs understanding and degrading much more effectively, both in sex work and forced labour. Uh, and so that, that, that's putting that to, to one side. Why else doesn't it work? It doesn't work well because the not-for-profit world, which is the richest in terms of survivor narratives, is seized of the notion that that material should remain private and not pass out of the hands of those who work directly with the victim, with the survivor. And I can understand their their reticence and, and their concerns. But the, but the truth is, that story belongs to the survivor and, and to no one else. And I think every survivor out there kind of wants their experience to be something that 
something that other people should learn from and not fall into the same trick, not fall into the same place that they did. And the only way you can do that is to depersonalize it effectively and then share it effectively, which is why we invented Traffic Analysis Hub five odd years ago and we're fortunate to get the support of IBM to build the platform. I'm not here to tell you it's perfect yet. And one of the principal reasons it's not perfect is that we're still over-reliant on open source reporting and not reliant enough uh, because we don't have the volumes that we need of not-for-profit survivor narratives suitably depersonalized to ensure you can't identify a victim from them, but that you can use that journey into exploitation and the core elements of it to begin to build an analysis that is irrefutable, that begins to signal the route to change. I remember when I first met you, you had made a a comment that was something along the lines of, if we knew what the question was that we should ask, we would have asked Google already and Google would have given us the answer for how to stop human trafficking. I know I'm grossly simplifying what you said, but it was something along those lines, basically boiling down to the fact that we we don't know what question what the right questions are to ask yet. I'm wondering now, four years on, do you still think that's true? And is it that survivor narratives give us the insights we need to ask the right questions? Or is there something else we should be looking at to do that? I think survivor narratives take us a very long way. But if you wanted to short circuit this whole thing, the answer is probably in the enormous data that's retained by Google, maybe Meta, there may be others creeping up now. Those guys, those guys have probably got enough data about all of our habits and activities that if they devoted the developer time, they could tell us, they could tell the world so much about trafficking and exploitation that it would shock your socks off. Uh, And we need to shock the world's socks off um, uh, in such a way that it it changes behaviour. This is about how we change corporate, financial, broad business and consumer behaviour in every way. Even those consumers that go to brothels and imagine that the women in them are free to sell sex and actually want to have sex with them. You know, you need to do a bit of personal due diligence uh, along the way. There may indeed be people who want to sell you sex, but you have an obligation to look for clues when you embark on, on that kind of a journey. You have an obligation You have a safeguarding obligation if you find yourself in the presence of someone who is not free. Yeah, absolutely. Let's bring this back to the Ukraine context, because I know you've been doing quite a bit of work on this in the last few months. What is trafficking looking like in Ukraine right now? And what are some of the patterns that you're you're focused on? Ukraine, like every country, has a pre-existing history of, of, of trafficking and exploitation, without a shadow of a doubt. We know from work that we've been able to do that there was a uh, there were a number, a decent number, um, in, in probably into thousands of Ukrainian people in the UK that were in exploitation before the conflict. They are sought after workers, particularly in big agriculture. And that's the same across Europe. There's a pre-existing 
profile of Ukrainian women in sex work, particularly in some parts of Southern Europe. And that tells us that, because the truth is that for the most part, Ukrainian people, Ukrainian criminals will traffic Ukrainian people like Romanian criminals traffic Romanian people, like Mexican criminals traffic Mexican people. It's just a truism. There may well be partnerships from other places in in the crime network, uh, but they'll usually utilise people who are in culture, in language, in context, in place, in vulnerable communities to do that work because you need to retain those control mechanisms I talked about earlier. You need to be able to reach uh, the families and communities from which people come in order to make sure that when the chips are down, that they stay working. And when finally they do, uh, they aren't any use to you anymore for whatever reason, and they return home, that they keep silent, and they do. So they may go home to their communities, and the criminal group is still working all around them, and, and, and they will stay silent. They very rarely will speak up and say, don't, these people exploited me. How has the war changed the patterns, though? So the, the war has changed the patterns in that any exploitation that was available in the Ukraine has probably largely broken down. In the, re, in the reconstruction process that inevitably will follow at some point, that's another story. Uh, that The likelihood for some exploitation to creep back into that is, I think, probably very high. Uh, but in terms of people on the move, all of our experience, when you look at the Rohingya, when you look at the Syrian crisis, there's a point in time when large numbers of people on the on the move are infiltrated actively by criminal groups um, and the recruiting pl- process for exploitation begins in earnest. And we think we've reached, just reached that point now with the Ukrainian communities. So we're seeing active recruitment of, of, of young women in Romania and Moldova to go and work in brothels in Greece and Turkey and other places. So we're seeing an increase of Ukrainian young women, some of them under 18, showing up in Southern Europe. It's manifesting itself in different ways. Traffickers are persuading families to let them take their children to a place of safety because they have residence in a third country. It might be France or Spain or the UK or the Netherlands, but they're persuading families to let their children go, particularly sort of teenage girls. Um, while mum and dad stay behind to do their duty in Ukraine. And clearly, uh, the intent is to take them for generally sexual exploitation. Young women are hugely vulnerable to sexual exploitation. And the younger they are, sadly, the more market they command from criminals who can access that that kind of world. And because the refugee set from Ukraine is unique in that, There are very few men there. They are mainly uh, women and children, together with some older folk. The women and children are great targets for traffickers. They're marketable. But you've got to have a market to deploy them in. So, of course, when the refugee crisis began three, four months ago, there was no market for them, no natural market prepared for them. So whilst there were chances around on the border, right from the very beginning, and we know that people with a with preconvictions for sexual abuse of minors were making their way over there in the hope of finding 
uh, finding an easy an easy goal, an easy win, that was probably still pretty limited. But now we think markets have been opened up. People are people are now actively recruiting, and they will be from amongst. Ukrainian communities. So you've got to be able to speak either Russian or Ukrainian. You, you need to be able to access and get the trust of the people that you're you're working with. So it's likely to be in quite sizable refugee communities where they're, you know, they've been for some weeks and months and they'll be selling them a story. They'll be selling them a story and a journey and trying to get them to go with them. Still in overall numbers, you know, given that there are six plus million refugees uh, in in various parts of Europe, it's still low numbers in, by comparison, but it's building. The great good news is that right from the very beginning, for reasons I don't necessarily understand, the media in the broad went crazy with the notion that trafficking was going to be manifest all over this piece. And whatever we say, that that has a degrading effect. Thousand, literally thousands of people with a sense of wanting to stop um, traffickers being successful, mobilised themselves from all over the world and went to the border areas and 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 are still, you know, on the trains out to Mondo- Moldova, Romania and elsewhere, you know, offering support to cops and other local authorities and uh, and doing everything they can to spot and stop trafficking. This this is all good. Added to which, we've used our understanding to build a really strong social media campaign we have a we have a good relationship with facebook meta we are able to use their paid ad space free and that you know they give us a lot of support uh, in terms of building paid ads that um, we can target on ukrainian and russian speaking ukrainians in particular parts of europe um, that that give them stay safe messages just practical advice one of the smartest things we did right at the very beginning was if you show up at a border and someone offers you a lift, it doesn't mean that they're traffickers, but we recommend that you take some pictures of of them and of their ID documents, of their vehicle, uh, and you share those with your network on, on social media just so that everybody knows where you are and where you're going and who you're going with. Uh, and, you know, if you ask a trafficker that question, the chances are he's going to decide that you're not the family for them to go with him. And it's just decent practical advice. And we're just now ratcheting up our messaging to try to come up with some practical advice about opportunities and watching for tricks and being careful because they may actually come from within your own community. We don't always get positive feedback uh, on our pages, on social media, but by far, um, the audience is is well over 2 million now. And when you consider that a bunch of the people that would have picked up on those paid ads uh, are children and wouldn't have ad- had access to uh, to those Facebook accounts, we're probably, we've probably been read by people responsible for four plus million people in that refugee set. That's the the challenge looking at this crime is that there's so many different stakeholders in it. You have financial institutions, the tech companies, NGOs, and law enforcement, and everybody in all of society. I mean, we all touch this crime, but most of us aren't aware that we touch this crime. I think probably one of the biggest issues in it and in combating it is that 
it's the seedy underbelly of everything and we just don't know it. It is true. And it's hard to get people to, to feel that sense of responsibility. You know, people that I'm very close to um, and have been f- for many years, they, they listen to and, and they think I waste my time because their, their perspective is, listen, this is none of our business. This is none of our business. This is the business of people that turn a blind eye to the workforce on or actively engage in it. Um, and it's a job, it's a job for the police. And, and yeah, it is, but it's a, sadly, it's a dinner way too big for the police to eat. And that's a significant challenge. We live in a world that now is, it's really hard to hide stuff. And, and that's a, that's a great benefit to us all. I don't think the 1970s when I started my law enforcement career where it was really highly, it was really easy to hide stuff. And the media, they just didn't, there were things they just didn't report because you just didn't go there. And now no one's afraid to go there and they shouldn't be afraid to go there. And I think all of us who think we've got a secret in public life are going to fail miserably if we rely on that staying secret. And, and that's healthy. And that will just accelerate. And, and I want this to be part of that acceleration. So it comes back to that choice. When those very big corporates, you know, the big consumer packaged goods businesses buy raw materials in enormous bulk from around the world, and there's been this process of, of chasing the cheapest labour markets for years now, um, which is why you've seen the garment industry skip around the world to, to all kinds of different locations. I think businesses need to understand more deeply uh, the the comparison between embarrassment because it will embarrass them and cheap and cheap labor because cheap labor inevitably means exploited labor in this day and age actually economically and I'm not an economist but we need everybody in the world to start doing this kind of coming up rather than pushing down in terms of what we pay people because that benefits everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Every time we we talk about trafficking, I'm both sort of filled with horror at how much people exploit other people and take advantage of people's suffering. And at the same time, incredibly impressed and sort of filled with admiration for you, the, the fact that you've been fighting this for decades. And so on a, on a personal level, what has continued to give you the motivation to keep fighting this? It's a passion. And and I think that we're onto something. I, I really do think the Traffic Analysis Hub and and Stop the Traffic, and I ought to just pop in the, the links, so www.stopthetraffic.org and the same for trafficanalysis.org. We're sisters. You know, both of those have been on a journey for ages to prevent. Bishop Desmond Tutu, once upon a time, talked about stopping people falling into the river rather than pulling them out when they were drowning. And and I just thought it was a great way of describing the journey into trafficking. We, it's, it's much simpler to stop people falling into the river. Um, it's much harder to pull someone out when, when they're nearly dead. We need to focus more on how we just disenfranchise traffickers by removing their market opportunities. And, and that's the power, of, the power of data. It's not the power of data, it's the power of the analysis of the data. It's the power of the insights that, 
give an auditor a different bunch of questions to ask. You know, when they look at the accounts, they say, how does a business this big produce that much with this smaller wage outgoing? And if we could automate that in some way, and automation's the thing, if we could automate that kind of an analysis, um, we'd be onto a winner uh, because you can't hide it anymore. And yes, there are some jurisdictions around the world where it's a popular sport to bring labour in from outside to make it as cheap as it's possible possible to be um, and, and way under any kind of sense of, of a national base wage. National base wage everywhere is really important. You know, we need to intertwine our analysis with that work. We need to be able to give financial institutions clues and they need different pa- they need different tools at work at, at the moment financial institutions because of course every transaction on the back of exploitation is money laundering as soon as it hits the bank it's money laundering but it's it tends to it's not like the tens of millions of dollars in a go that your drug trafficker your top drug trafficker might be trying to put into financial systems um, but it is the credit card payment for the one-way ticket on an airplane. It, it is the rental for for the apartment from Airbnb that's being used as a brothel for five weeks. Everybody's got a part to play in this money laundering thing, uh, and they need different tools than just issuing a report to law enforcement via the, the current system, a suspicious activity report, a transaction report. Um, if that's all that occurs because they suspect money laundering, we're going to go nowhere. Banks need to actually say, yes, I'm issuing that report. And by the way, Neil Giles, I'm afraid we're having to freeze your account because we're worried about this unless you've got a very strong explanation right now. Now, I know that's going to take a lot more bank resource, but that's that's going to have to be a way forward. And that needs to operate with a business as big as some of those big palm oil producers too. Suddenly, you don't have the finance that you thought you had because the bank have frozen you. Now we're going to make progress. And that's what Traffic Analysis Hub, that's the journey you're on is to get us there. And that's the dream. And, awesome. and you got to have a dream. Yes, you do. Absolutely. Especially when fighting something as big as this. And thank you for having a dream and a vision and actually doing something about it. I had mentioned to you as a way of uh, sort of convincing you to, to come on the show that part of what we're doing here is actually ideating through solutions that could help institutions like yourself to actually think through some of these bigger challenges and maybe present you back with something that could be helpful. If you could think across the spectrum of different challenges you're looking at at the moment, what's sort of the most important behavioral challenge or data challenge that you're looking to solve? I think actually it's behavioral. I think there's a great deal that we can achieve with communication. Uh, right, Right now, we're able to communicate because vulnerable people tend to use social media platforms to communicate with one another and with family, even when they're in exploitation. So that, that was a great opportunity for us to be able to get prevention messages out to a vulnerable world. I think there's much more to do with communication in terms of how we communicate with traffickers who monitor the work. How do we identify the channels they use and get communications to them that make them start to think that this was a business sector they 
might want to think about moving on from. How do we get communications out to the very biggest businesses, some of which are household names in our countries, that make them think differently about how they tend to pay lip service to this issue? Uh, And looking at all those modern slavery statements that they've put together over the years, yeah, there's there's a whole ton of lip service going on out there. And there's a whole ton of very big businesses who really don't think they need to bother with this. It's it's not a problem for us. It's a problem for every corporate. And we need to find a way to communicate in in ways that make them sit up and take notice. That's the next place we need to get to. Okay. And you mentioned to me, I think a couple of weeks ago, that one really big challenge you're thinking about is how to get NGO workers to share their stories more. Uh, Yeah, back to that, protect the survivor doesn't mean prevent their story from inspiring change. Absolutely. So out of those three challenges, so communicate with traffickers, communicating with corporates, or getting NGO workers to share their stories, what's the challenge that you'd like to pose to us? That is such a heavy question. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly... We can start with one and then go from there. (laughs) I mean, I I think that we're actually on a gentle pro- progression with the not-for-profit world, and maybe I need to stay more patient with um, persuading my my friends uh, across. And this is a vast industry. There are many thousands of these small not-for-profits around the world who who often don't trust uh, the authorities in the area where they work, and sometimes for decent reason. But yes, I think we're on a decent pathway with those guys. What Where we're not on a great pathway, I think, at the moment is, is with enough boardrooms. So yeah, that's the challenge then. How do you get this message into the boardrooms across the world? All right, challenge accepted. So here's what we're going to do. It'll be myself, DBS, and Micah will take this and deconstruct it, and we'll think about different approaches that we could use that would leverage behavioral science and data science and communications to actually start to start to chip away at this very interesting challenge you pose to us. And then we'll come back to you with hopefully something that's useful. Thank you. I shall look forward to it. Thank you so, so much, Neil, for being on today's episode. I think I get smarter and wiser every time I talk to you. And if you'd like to learn more about Neil's work and how to combat human trafficking, go to stopthetraffic.org and traffickanalysishub.org.